lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota, and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. Seed Saver Extraordinaire and co-author of The Complete Guide to Saving Seeds, 322 Vegetables, Herbs, Fruits, Flowers, Trees, and Shrubs, Cheryl Moore Goff is on the show today. And Cheryl's going to help us learn how to save seeds to use in next year's garden, or to share with our fellow gardeners, or even to donate to the community through our local seed libraries. Now, experienced gardeners know that saving seed is just another excellent skill to have in your garden toolkit, so to speak, and it can also make gardening even more budget-wise. Saving seed means you can play breeder as well, picking your very best plants for seed harvesting and then slowly improving your resident plants by selecting seed based on taste, productivity, and hardiness. Now, I started saving seed with two beautiful ornamentals or annuals in my garden. The first was Love in a Mist or Nigella, and the other was Spider Flower or Cleome. Once you have a favorite plant and figure out how to save the seed, you won't believe how happy it'll make you. Saving Seed for the Garden with Cheryl Moore Goff. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. Well, I'd like to start out by saying a quick thank you for listening to the Still Growing Podcast this week, especially if you've just found the show. I want to welcome you and thank you for being here. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. And of course, I always say that I hope you're listening to a bunch of gardening podcasts. They're a great way to learn and grow as a gardener. So fill up your playlist and get listening. Now, I created something special for this podcast, and that is a listener community for the show. It's a free private Facebook group that I'd like to invite you to join. I host it for listeners of the show and You can find it simply on Facebook just by typing the name of our group into the search bar. Just search for the Still Growing Podcast Group, and then the listener community will just pop up at the top of the search results, and then you can request to join. Now, there are a number of benefits that you enjoy by joining the group. First, you get access to all of the great garden articles that I curate. They'll just appear in your Facebook newsfeed. So if you'd like to see more helpful posts about gardening, then by all means, join the listener community for the show. Second, the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any of my show giveaways. Last week's guest, Kylie Baumley, wrote a great book on how to save our most beloved butterfly, the monarch. And the winner of that book is listener Jay Smith. So congratulations, Jay. You can private message me with your contact information, your email address, and your physical address, and Kylie will get a book sent to you. Congratulations. There are a couple of other reasons to join the Facebook group. 
And this is probably my favorite reason, and that is that you get to interact with the great guests that have been on the show, like Kylie Bomley, like Brie Arthur, the author of The Foodscape Revolution, like Jody McKee, the herbalist that was featured back in episode 564. Lots of great real people, real experts in the area of gardening that you can interact with in the group. And then finally, there's no spam in this group. The content I share with the listener community is something that I work very hard to make sure is helpful and worthwhile for you. Everything I post is curated with you in mind to help you and your garden grow. Plus, it's free and easy to join. So the next time you're in Facebook, just head on up to the search bar and type in Still Growing Podcast Group and then just request to join. All right, it's time to welcome new members to the group. Julie Heinen, Vicki Nelson, Sandra Selgin, Cheryl McCullough, Preston Wright, Linda O'Hara, Sue Campbell-Hennessy, Julie Frame, Allison Edwards, Christopher Yoder, Kelly Thomas, Barbara Japal, Tracy Lynn, Tammy Rock, Aaron Scott, and Richard Phillips. Welcome, you guys. This week, I have a handful of hot topics to share with you from the listener community. Listener Nozomi Ayoama shared a wonderful post. She was asking for a plant ID, trying to figure out the name of an invasive vine. And she happened to take a picture of her gardening gloves, which looked like they had little claws attached to each fingertip. And of course, that sparked a lot of curiosity. People were asking, where can I get gloves like that? And these are the Garden Genie gloves. You can get them on Amazon. They're pretty inexpensive. They're $3.25 if you prime them. And basically, they're just a simple pair of garden gloves, but they have claws on the right hand, which makes it easy to dig. And since they're pretty inexpensive, go ahead and add them to your shopping cart the next time you're ordering on Amazon. And as long as your order is over 25 bucks, you'll have free shipping on them to boot. So treat yourself. Well, if you'd like to try to grow something impressive, listener Danny Perkins shared a video of his giant cosmos that have finally bloomed. And then here he had a monarch butterfly photobombing this video to boot. It was just glorious. But Danny posted this video. It's pretty impressive. And some of these cosmos are 10 feet tall. Just fantastic. Finally, listener Amy Steinhauser shared a nice post that featured how to make bird seed ornaments for the holidays. The title of the post was appropriately called Tweet Treats, and these would make lovely do-it-yourself gifts for your garden friends this holiday season. Now, if you have comments or questions or suggestions for the show, feel free to call the phone number for the show. It's 865 865- 333-GROW or 865-333-4769.
All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group, and it's made up of a dozen different segments. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you can stay somewhat abreast of the news in horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week, and you can easily check out these curated articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head on over to the group and join. All right, we always kick off the Garden News Roundup with a guest update. Past guest Pam Pennick, author of The Water Saving Garden, she was featured back in episode 555 wrote a review of Kylie Bomley's book, The Monarch, Saving Our Most Loved Butterfly. It was a great review, and you can read all about it, plus see some new images over at Pam's blog, simply called Digging. Then past guest Megan Kane featured in episode 557. She's the creative vegetable gardener. She recently wrote a post called Tips for Tidying Up Your Vegetable Garden for Winter, and she shared it in our group. Here were her five tips. Clean out plant debris, mulch all garden beds, cover plants with row cover. This, of course, is for any fall vegetables that you're hoping to continue to harvest from this year and next, such as newly planted garlic, spinach, or perennial herbs. Then, of course, planting garlic. And finally, planting bulbs for more spring color. Now, Megan is a true garden blogger. She regularly posts new content, and some of her latest blog posts might be of interest to you. So head on over to her website. It's called Creative Vegetable Gardener, and the posts I'm thinking about that are extra good for fall gardening are Why Growing a Fall Garden is So Easy, Fresh Recipes from the Garden for Fall, and then finally, Eight Easy Vegetables to Grow for Big Fall Harvests. And you can find all of that very simply, very easily over at her blog, Creative Vegetable Gardener. In sustainability this week, the chowhound.com shared a fun post that was simply called Fall Herbs and Spices that Double as Decor. I love repurposing herbs in my house. And of course, this time of year, mini pumpkins, fall squash, autumn leaves are so easily incorporated into your decor. But as this article points out, there are other ideas that could possibly be even easier. You can incorporate things like mini potted herbs for your table. Now, if you do this, you could pick more traditional fall seasonings like rosemary, sage, and thyme. That's the suggestion from Liz Lynch over on My Domain. You can also hang herbs for drying and decoration, kind of making a little swag over a window, your kitchen window. That's perfect. They had a great idea of wrapping a candle with cinnamon sticks and then tying it together with a simple piece of rope. And there were other ideas as well. Lots of nice, simple activities to get you started and inspire you. 
In continuing ed, Madeline Sparks shared a post in ruralintelligence.com, and she talks about her process for bringing plants from the outside in. And it all starts with the very difficult first step of determining which plants make the cut or not. And then the rest of her process really mimics mine. So I thought, well, I'm going to share this with you really quickly. The first thing she does is she grooms these plants that she's identified as plants she wants to overwinter indoors. These can be house plants that she's brought outside to enjoy the summer outside. But then when it's time to bring them back in the fall, Here's her process for making sure that she's not bringing in pests or other problems, really helping ease that transition from outdoors back to indoors. The first thing she does is groom these plants. I do the same thing, simply going through the plants and removing any debris or dead leaves, things like that. Check the top of the soil. It's a great time to make sure they get a little spruce up. I'll take a pruners and just snip off any dead areas of the plant and then as well as just kind of tidy it up, make it look good again. I brought in an aloe plant that had some stalks that were just kind of leaning over funny. I got rid of those and then I took care of some of the tips that had browned. All of that came off and just a general haircut, a spruce up for that plant is a great first step. Then Madeline suggests flushing the plant, and I do this exact thing. So I love that she incorporated this here. What she does is she takes the end of a hose sprayer and she sprays the soil with at least a gallon of water to flush out minerals and salts that might have accumulated. And it also can force out or drown some pests that are in the soil. Now, I'll do the same thing with my house plants. I bring them in. I do all of this in the kitchen sink. I usually use lukewarm water because I figure, why not? If I have lukewarm water available to me, I'm going to use it. I think it's a little nicer, a little gentler on your plants. It also can kind of wake them up a little bit here in Minnesota because the air temperature gets so cold that I'm usually bringing my houseplants in when it's around 50 degrees outside. So it can be a little chilly out there. And that nice warm bath when they first come in is a nice way to welcome them back indoors, don't you think? Now, what I'll also do is incorporate a little dish soap there. Just cleaning the leaves off very gently, doing a very good rinse, and then letting them drip dry. Anyway, I really enjoyed this post by Madeline. There's a few other tips here that you can go ahead and read for yourself. And don't be fooled by a sudden snap of warm weather. Sometimes we can get a little lazy when it comes to bringing in those plants, thinking we have more time. But if we know anything about late October and November, the weather can turn very suddenly. So if you have plants that you want to bring in, now's the time to do it. Do it the right way. Take your time. Don't be in a hurry. Your plants and your future self will thank you. In the how-to DIY segment were three really great articles. The first was by James Wong, and it was featured in The Guardian. It was simply called How to Treat Your Terrarium. My mom actually sent this article to me because, of course, she knows I love terrariums. I have a number of them in my house. And I thought James makes a very good point in his article. He says this, 99% 
of the terrariums I see today are just too small, way too small. They don't either have enough air space or enough soil space, usually both, for plants to root properly or to produce new leaves or flowers. Aside from physically fitting your plants in, the bigger volume of air in your container, the more functional its microclimate will be. This is an excellent point. And my best performing terrariums are my larger terrariums, I have to say. And my favorite place to source these containers is still Goodwill, thrift stores, things like that. And I look for large vases large pieces of glasswork, or even old lamps that I can repurpose the globes into terrariums. And I'll also just say this, you can follow James on Twitter. His handle is at Botany Geek, and I really love his tweets. Also in the how-to DIY segment was a great post from Pith and Vigor. This one was from Rochelle, And it's simply called How to Be Your Own Garden Designer. Think like a curator. And then here are her tips for how to think like a curator. Tell a story. Remember that your garden is a story. So are you telling a story about color or material? Or maybe there's a more personal thread that runs through your garden. And then she says, don't follow trends. Collect what you love what gets you excited. That will help ensure your garden is unique, interesting, and special. So be picky, do your research, and display your items creatively. Lots of great tips in here by Rochelle. And then finally, my favorite post in the How to DIY segment was by growingupherbal.com. And this post was called How to Forage for Chicory This Fall. It caught my attention because I actually went out of my way to order chicory seeds because I didn't have any, and I just fell in love with the blue flowers. Now, chicory is a bitter root, but it has all kinds of health benefits. So after talking about how to find it, how to forage for it, basic identification tips, this post walks you through how to make your own chicory coffee recipe. And I like what Lori wrote here right before she introduces us to how to make chicory coffee. She said, I tend to be lazy about my herbal remedies and grinding my chicory every time I want it just gets on my nerves. Although I usually grind my coffee, so there you go. Instead, I like to mix chicory with other bitter herbs and cacao nibs for a deeper bitter drink full of antioxidants. I don't add any sweetener, but you can totally throw in some licorice root or coconut milk afterward if you're a cream lover. And I really like that about Lori's posts because she's very real. She just adds her own little anecdotes, and that's what makes her herbal blog very special. So again, this was on growingupherbal.com. In the plant spotlight, Toronto Gardens shared a great post on knotweed, And this one started out a little cheeky. It says, to be honest, most knotweeds are at least a little knotty. They can spread. That might be a good trait in a ground cover, but it can also make it very invasive and very hard to eradicate, especially the Japanese knotweed. 
Now, what I like about this post is they do a great job of introducing us into the diverse world of knotweeds. And then they offer examples. And as they point out, knotweeds generally have spiky flowers and they have common names like fleece flower. So if you're curious about knotweed, check out this post by Toronto Gardens. In the news, the Charmant International Garden Festival was featured. This year was the 26th International Garden Festival there, and it's grown quite a bit over the past 26 years. This post by The Telegraph was especially interesting because it featured some of the most amazing gardens at Charmant this year. And one of the things that caught my attention was this wooden arbor that was handmade using sticks. It was very captivating, and if for no other reason than checking out this arbor, you should take a look at this post. The Jersey Journal shared a beautiful image of a kaleidoscope of monarch butterflies that were swarming over trees. They'd stopped in this community in Jersey along their flyway migration southward. And these pictures of monarch butterflies swarming different trees on their way south are always so fascinating to look at. So this post was a favorite of mine. I found a number of posts featuring giant pumpkins that are usually around two tons in many of these articles. This year, a grower in Rhode Island was the first in the world to achieve a trifecta in the hobby of growing gargantuan food. He has world records for heaviest pumpkin, longest long gourd, and now the heaviest squash. So this is Joe Jutras, and he got his third award during this past weekend with his giant squash that weighed more than a ton. This is something he's been working on over a decade to achieve. He just specializes in growing these giant vegetables. And next, he's thinking about the bushel gourd. He said that the record is currently 279 pounds, so he's trying to beat that record. Heading into the dream guest segment here was a very captivating post by Kohler and Dram featuring their custom garlands that they ship all over the world. And the images of these garlands were super inspiring. Listener Sue Luftig said that she worked in a beautiful home years ago, and the designer put a simple drying rack over the kitchen windows. It was just a board with pegs, but then she hung bunches of herbs and dried flowers. It was just so simple and so beautiful that she was going to try to recreate it again. And that's what the image of all of these custom garlands, some were seasonal, some were herbs, some were just these unique combinations of flowers and different cuttings from trees and various ornamentals. It was just beautiful. And then as luck would have it, listener Amy Steinhauser said that she knows one of their best designers. They happen to be based here in the Twin Cities. And she's going to put me in touch with someone from Kohler and Dram. So I'm really looking forward to that. So thank you, Amy. In Science This Week, I shared this article that I had discovered in my local newspaper. It was called Birds Raise Their Voices to Be Heard. And it turns out that human-generated noise affects how birds communicate. 
And the article ended with this very thought-provoking paragraph. Of all the problems birds face, urban noise seems to be intractable at best. This is not an endorsement of an 18th century lifestyle. The world is what we've made it. Unmaking it is unlikely. Birds will cope or they won't. In shopping this week, I stumbled on a planting design course that's offered in association with Gardens Illustrated. And the course focuses on Pete Odal's gardening style. For $320, you get four lessons. It's taught by Noel Kingsbury. And here's what you learn. The technical detail of Pete's signature style using plants that are predictable and long-lived, perennial meadow planting, a detailed practical course covering all aspects of this planting style taught by Michael King, and gardening with grasses, which takes a detailed look at this critical element of Pete's planting palette. And since this is an online course, it can be watched anywhere in the world, and I thought it would make a great Christmas present for a gardener. So keep that in mind if you're looking for something special. In recipes this week, I dug out an oldie but goodie and it was featured in finecooking.com and it shared a fall herb butter. This compound butter features almonds and they offer a toasty counterpoint to the herbs that are in this savory butter, like parsley, thyme, and sage. Anyway, it's one of my favorites. It's an oldie but goodie. And then foxesloveLemons.com shared a slow cooker recipe for autumn chicken and apple cider chili. This one is a simple soup, but it also has a surprising depth of flavor from fall herbs and apple cider. So that was shared in the Facebook group as well. And again, that's from Foxes Love Lemons. Finally, the organization called Thrive out of England shared a very moving post, and it features one of their employees named John Wetherill. Now, Thrive is an organization that uses gardening to change lives. So they employ horticultural therapists, and they really work to help people get back on their feet. This article made the inspiration segment because I found it so very moving. I'll read you this excerpt. Gardening helped Thrive employee John Weatherall find a way back into society following two decades of isolation, homelessness, and mental ill health. John was a gifted student studying music at Cambridge. However, he struggled to make friends, and after graduation, he retreated into himself, becoming homeless and withdrawing further and further from society. By the early 90s, John was living on the streets and wandering the length of the country on foot, convinced he was under CIA surveillance. With these and similar paranoid delusions dominating his every waking moment, he was eventually hospitalized in 1995 with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Accommodation was found for him in a hostel run by the homeless charity St. Mungo's, but six months later, he was still struggling to readjust to civilized life, slowly becoming accustomed to using a knife and fork again, taking regular baths, and even sleeping in a bed, which he hadn't done for many years. He was then introduced to Thrive by a housing support worker. 
and he started gardening with them in Battersea Park. John says, this was the first time in 20 years that I got to experience ordinary human affection in a social group. The horticultural therapist talked to me on an equal level, a sense of common humanity, which is sometimes missing in the psychiatric system. I started mixing with all kinds of different people, those with learning disabilities and physical disabilities. I worked with one Thrive volunteer who was a published author, and she encouraged me with the poems I was writing. Because of the physical tasks shared in common, I found myself bonding naturally with the others. Lunch hours were as helpful as work periods. Silence was as helpful as chatting. It felt almost as though the garden were absorbing people's problems and anxieties. This article goes on, but I found it so very moving, and it just really speaks to the power of gardening to help anchor us in the world and help us connect with each other and ourselves. There's another two pages left of John's story if you'd like to read it. I did go ahead and share it in the Facebook group. I think you'll enjoy reading the rest of John's story. So make sure to track that down when you get in the Facebook group. Just search for Thrive. All right. In quotables, of course, this week's quotables are all about seeds. So here we go. We'll start out with this famous one from Aeschylus. From a small seed, a mighty trunk may grow. Here's one from Robert Schuller. Anyone can count the seeds in an apple, but only God can count the number of apples in a seed. Here's one from Henry David Thoreau. Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. Then here's a quote from Vandana Shiva, co-founder of Navdanya, which promotes seed saving and organic farming. A seed sown in the soil makes us one with the earth. It makes us realize that we are the earth, that this body of ours is the Panchabuddha, the five elements that make the universe and make our bodies. The simple act of sowing a seed, saving a seed, planting a seed, harvesting a crop for seed, is bringing back this memory, this timeless memory of our oneness with the earth and the creative universe. There's nothing that gives me deeper joy than the work of protecting the diversity and the freedom of the seed. Every expression of diversity is an expression of freedom, and every expression of monoculture is an expression of coercion. Monocultures can only be held together through external control, and uniformity and external control and concentration go hand in hand. Life is self-organized. Self-organized systems evolve in diversity. You are not identical to me because each of us has evolved in freedom. The self-organizing capacity of life is expressed in diversity. Diversity of culture, 
diversity of humans, diversity of seeds. Well, that's the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed if you join the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, How to Save Seeds with Cheryl Moore Goff. From a food perspective, saving seed is important work. From a gardening perspective, saving seed is an important skill to learn and practice. Past guest of Still Growing and the author of many books, including her latest, Homegrown Pantry, the lovely Barbara Pleasant from back in episode 584, wrote a blog post about saving seed back in January 2016. Here's what she said. Last week, I sorted through the bin where I keep my seeds, tossing out old partial packets I'll never use, and making a list of what I need to buy. It was a short shopping list because more and more of my garden seeds are born and raised in my garden. I confess that this has never been a primary goal. I love trying new veggie varieties, but seed saving quickly becomes habit forming when you work with plants that make the process easy. Like many other aspects of gardening, when the skill of saving seed becomes part of your repertoire, you'll find it's a natural part of your regular activities in your garden. After years of saving seed, Barbara commented on how the practice has changed her, saying, where I have seen the change is in the size of my seed bill, which is in a steady state of decline. I'm happy to pay for great seeds that I can't grow myself, but some seeds are so easy to save that it's truly the best way to go. With the summer of 2017 fading into memory, my final visits to the garden include gathering ripe seed from plants like lettuce, cosmos, coriander, and nasturtiums. For me, the key is to have a few Ziploc bags to keep my collections straight, along with a pen to label the bags, so don't forget to tuck a pen into your garden apron. If you're ready to start saving seed, There are a number of excellent resources available today, but one of the most popular and favorite references remains the book Cheryl Moore Goff wrote with her husband Robert back in 2011, simply called The Complete Guide to Saving Seeds, 322 Vegetables, Herbs, Fruits, Flowers, Trees, and Shrubs. Preserve your favorite tastes and scents customize your garden plants, and promote diversity with the important skill of seed saving. Collect, grow, repeat. Let's learn from today's expert guest, Cheryl Moore Goff. Well, hi there, Cheryl. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Well, today we're talking about the book you wrote with your husband, The Complete Guide to Saving Seeds, 322 Vegetables, Herbs, Flowers, Fruits, Trees, and Shrubs. You cover it all. By the time this show comes out, it'll be October, 
and we blinked, the summer's over, and today many gardeners are finding themselves on a mission of saving seed as they walk their garden during the early months of fall. And I'd love to start by having you read the quote at the front of your book from George Washington, and then let's talk about saving seed and why more gardeners, especially new gardeners, should consider adding this skill to their toolkit. I'd be happy to. So George Washington said, bad seed is a robbery of the worst kind for your pocketbook not only suffers by it, but your preparations are lost and a season passes away unimproved. So gardeners who are avidly growing their own seeds are ones that want to have plants that are adapted to their own conditions. So anybody can go down to the grocery store and purchase a packet of seed, but they really don't have any assurance that those seeds are going to actually work in their yard. And so saving seeds from your backyard enables you to assure yourself that you're going to have plants that are vigorous and healthy under your conditions that will germinate in your yard. And so it's a lot of fun to develop this skill. You might be able to save a little money. And having this skill of your own enables you to pass that along to your children Teaching your children where your food comes from is a huge thing as far as I'm concerned. I think we have a couple of generations here in the United States where the food chain was disrupted and people thought that their food came from the grocery store. And so teaching your child to save a seed and plant it and watch that plant grow, flower, fruit, make seed, and the whole cycle starts again, is a skill truly worthy of obtaining. You know, you're very right. My own children and I often do family meetings. We'll have family meetings. My husband travels a lot. And so when I want to get their attention, I'll say, let's have a family meeting. I want to talk about this. And we've been talking a lot this last month about transitioning into adulthood because my oldest is going to be going to college next year. So we're having a lot of conversations around leaving home and starting your life, whether you're going to college college or tech school or what have you. And one of the things I was talking to the kids about is I said, you are now two generations removed from growing up on a farm because all of our ancestors were very agrarian. And so I grew up in a city. I was the first generation. My husband and I both not to grow up on a farm. And now my kids are so far removed from growing up on a farm, they have no idea what farm life is like for kids, all of the chores, all of the work, the fact that, you know, the family's really working together. And seed saving was such a part of that or understanding seed. And it's now lost to so many people because we've become so much more urban over time. And that's very true, Jennifer. My children are now in their 30s, and uh, my family were were farmers a couple of generations ago, and my parents were uh, essentially TV dinner folks. And when I was in high school, one of my friend's uh, fathers dug up their backyard and planted a vegetable garden, which was 
so crazy uh, back then. But my children grew up with me with a thousand square foot garden in their backyard. They've seen the whole cycle and they now are growing their own food and saving their own seeds. So it's really a thrill to pass this skill on to the next generation that was lost for several Mm-hmm. I agree. And, you know, it's funny, too, when you talk about something like seed saving, you know, to people that have not lost the skill where it truly is continuing to get passed down through their family, you know, that's one thing. They can continue to enjoy it. It's just part of what they do. It's so integrated into how their family, you know, handles gardening or handles food or views it, the lens that they look at it through. But when you get with people who are first generation gardeners, you know, after after a little bit of a lapse, probably, it is really something to hear the wonder in their voice or see the amazement in their eyes when they recognize that they can actually continue the work that this plant has begun by saving seed. That's exactly right. And I have the opportunity to teach uh, college-age students in a uh, classroom situation that's out in the field where they do save seeds, where they do plant seeds, where they actually harvest and eat the food that they have uh, grown themselves. And some of them, that's a very, very first time they've had the opportunity to do that, which is it's very fulfilling to me. Mm-hmm. You know, at one point early in your book, you say, understanding the physiology of how plants produce seeds is fundamental to seed saving success. And it just might make you a better gardener overall, too. What do you wish most gardeners had a better understanding of when it comes to seed production in plants? I hear questions all the time about people who don't understand, first of all, that plants have sex. The plants are often either male or female. And, of course, males produce pollen and females produce the flowers, seeds. And there are some flowers that are male and some flowers that are female and some that are both. So understanding the fact that not every plant might make a seed is huge and not every flower might make a seed. Only those female plants or female flowers will make your seeds. So if you have a male spinach plant, for instance, and it's your only spinach plant in the garden and you're waiting for it to set seeds, it will not set seeds unless there's a female spinach plant nearby. So that's one huge thing is that people wait for plants to form seeds when there just isn't going to be one. And knowing, having a good reference that will tell you whether the plants are male or female or both or the flowers are male or female or both is very, very important and vital to saving seeds. The plant's life cycle is very important. Is it an annual plant, which means it flowers the first year it's been after it's been planted? Or a biennial, which means you plant the seed one year, it makes a structure like a root of a carrot that's a survival structure, an organ with storage for sugars, and the second year it will flower and make its seeds. Or is it a perennial? 
which grows year after year after year. If you expect your carrot, which is a biennial, to flower and set seeds in one growing season, you're going to be very disappointed. Another and final uh, thing that I wish people understood, and that is that some of our plants will cross unexpectedly, even with weeds. For example, if a lettuce plant in your garden is flowering and uh, pollinating, and nearby there's a weed called prickly lettuce that is also flowering and pollinating at the same time, there is the potential for those pollen uh, grains to cross. And then you'll end up with the weed pollinating and fertilizing the lettuce. And if you save those seeds and plant them the next year, you're going to end up with a plant that's not at all what you expected. It will be a cross of a weedy plant with a lettuce plant and may not be edible at all. I really liked how on the bottom of page 25, you created this lovely little highlighted box that's simply titled Best Bets for Beginners. Could I have you share some of these quick wins for gardeners who want to try their hand at saving seed? Because this is such a great starting point for folks. Absolutely. Uh, One of the things that I would encourage people to do is to know what is an easy plant to save seeds from. There's nothing more frustrating than deciding you want to save seeds from a linden tree, which requires special, special germination requirements, and it would probably fail. So trying something easy to start with is a really good idea. For vegetables, for instance, I really recommend that people try beans or lettuce. Uh, Peas are also easy, as are tomatoes, which is a real surprise to a number of people. Tomatoes are very easy to save seeds from. For herbs, we have cilantro, which if you've ever grown cilantro, or dill for that matter, it bolts and goes to seed very readily in your garden. Um, Also, marigolds and parsley are quite easy to save seeds from. For flowers, annual flowers, and I stress annual flowers, uh, it's important that you not try to get something that's a perennial. Uh, We have poppies and pinks, which are also called dianthus. Snapdragons are a snap. Sunflowers are easy, and sweet peas are extremely easy to save. Uh, As far as trees and shrubs, they can be tricky, but there's nothing easier than saving an apple seed. Now, an apple seed will typically readily sprout and grow, but you won't be seeing an actual tree from that seed. All of our apple trees are actually grafted, and so the uh, seed will germinate, it will sprout, you will have a plant, although it won't grow any apples for you. There's another fun insert in your book that made me chuckle, and it's called, Where Does the Root Go?, And it's on page 35. It made me smile because on the one hand, we often marvel at plants. What are they capable of? And at the same time, we expect so very much from them. This story showcases the trade-off between seeds 
and Roots. Let's have you read it and then comment on it on the other side. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'd love to. If you've ever overwintered beets for a second season's growth and then uprooted one of the plants after harvesting the seeds, you may have been surprised by the puniness of the root. Where did the beautiful round red beet root go? A biennial plant forms a taproot and a rosette of leaves in its first year of growth. All through the growing season, the plant stores up carbohydrate reserves in its taproot. Its biological strategy is to use those reserves for early growth the following spring. Thus, when we harvest a biennial root crop at the end of the first growing season, we're taking advantage of the plant's strategy for our own benefit. We get the food value that the plant intended for their own regrowth. If you overwinter or replant beets or any biennial root crop to grow for a second season, the plants use up the reserves in their tap roots early in the season. After that, the plants rely on small lateral roots to collect moisture and nutrients. Thus, by the time your beautiful beet plant forms its seed stock, the main tap root is dried up, shrunken, and not fit for consumption unless you're a wireworm. The moral of the story is you can't have your seeds and your roots, too. So what I think that this says to me is many of us think that plants are on this earth for our benefit, but they're actually there to reproduce and make seeds. So when we think that we're going to be able to eat a beet and get its seeds, it's just not going to happen. When we consume the beet in the first year, we're eating up all of those carbohydrates that the beet intended to reproduce and uh, make seeds the very, very next year. This is where truly understanding the life cycle becomes so important, and thus the saying, you have to grow it to know it. That's right. Chapter four of your book covers seed storage know-how, and you introduce a few tidbits I think many gardeners eventually wonder about. First, how long do seeds really last? And second, what about all these stories we hear of archaeologists discovering old jars or containers with seeds in them? Can seeds really last for thousands of years? Well, no, not typically. Most seeds last from, most vegetable seeds, for instance, last from three to ten years, although they can last longer under special conditions, and that's where their storage vaults come into. But even the storage vaults that save the seeds, that store the seeds for us, do rotate their stock because the older the seed gets, the less vigorous the resulting plant is going to be. The key three words for seed storage are cool, dark, and dry. So when you're storing your seeds, if you want to let them last for a long time, cool, dark, and dry. Now, these stories that you hear about archaeologists discovering seeds and producing plants from them, if you actually read the article, there was one recently in a National Geographic, for instance, the seeds themselves that were stored uh, were damaged, and therefore they were not viable. But there were some young seeds from which they were able to obtain plant tissue and were able to tissue culture 
the resulting plants. So they did grow plants from the seeds, but they were not mature seeds that they planted. It was They were grown from tissue in tissue culture. So that's a good way that uh, you can reproduce a plant from a very, very old seed. There was another one recently where there was some documentation of a very old squash that had been grown from seeds, and they were very excited about the seed that produced this squash that had to have been what people used to eat. But what they don't tell you is that squash are very... They interbreed very easily, and so it could have easily been a cross that had occurred at some point in time. So typically, no, seeds don't last for thousands of years, but if you store your seeds properly, cool, dark, and dry, you should be able to save them for three to ten years. Have you ever looked at the back of seed packets and they they list expiration dates? Do you feel that they maybe accelerate that expiration date a little bit? Or do you think that's just truly the expiration date of that seed? The expiration dates on, on many seeds, that is federally regulated. And so that has to be from a germination test the year um, that those seeds are packaged. And so you can pretty much rely on that uh, as far as a package date. Uh, if there's a use-by date, there are ways that you can determine once you've purchased those seeds if the seeds are still viable. You can do what's called a ragdoll test with those seeds, and you just take some of the seeds, put them in a damp paper towel, roll it up, put it in a plastic bag, throw it on your kitchen counter, and let it sit for a week or two and see if those seeds will germinate, and if so, at what rate. Why is it called a ragdoll test? Because that's just what it's called. <laughs> that's, okay. what the industry, that's what the industry calls it. Okay. Well, there's a marvelous graph on page 54, which rates various seed storage containers. And they looked at can, polyethylene, polyester, cloth, and paper. Why don't you share the results with us? And then any other storage recommendations you might have? So this information was uh, from a study that was done in 2004. And it was a six-year study with the materials that you indicated. And by far, the best germination rate came from seeds stored in cans or glass. And there was almost no loss in germination rate over six years. The second best were the polyethylene or polyester containers, which lost their germination rate a little more slowly. They still had very, very good germination for up to two years, and then there was a rapid decline after that uh, for about five years max. And cloth and paper, the germination rate declined much more rapidly. And in this particular study, uh, three years was the maximum storage in cloth or paper. Now, this information is very, very good if you intend to save your seeds for a long, long period of time, say six years. Most home seed savers, however, intend to plant within a year or two. And in that case, your cloth or your paper storage are just fine. 
again, the can and glass has the highest germination percent. It's higher than the cloth or paper, but the germination rate of those stored in cloth or paper um, would be just fine for at least one year and up to three. It's been my experience when I store uh, my seeds, I typically use either coin envelopes, which you have to purchase special, or um, Ziploc bags, depending on how long I'm going to store. Now, I use the coin envelopes because standard number 10 business size envelopes, if you look at the corners, they have holes in them. And so the seeds, small seeds, can very easily fall out of the envelopes through those holes, which is not acceptable as far as I'm concerned. So the take-home message here, again, when you store your seeds as a home gardener for a year or two, uh, paper envelopes are just fine. Cans, glass, or will also work for a couple of years. They will last the longest in cans or glass. And remember, cool, dark, and dry. And the reason for the cool, dark, and dry, people don't think about this, but seeds are alive. They are respiring. And so when it's cool and dark and dry, you slow down that respiration rate, and they live longer. That's an excellent point. I have to ask as a follow-up to this, is there a way that you can tell just by looking at a seed what that seed will turn into? Are there predictive markers or things that you can look at if somebody just handed you a handful of seeds where you'd be able to say, oh, it's probably this? Well, seeds are very distinctive in their appearance. You can definitely tell, for example, a bean seed from a uh, cabbage seed from a corn seed. However, the brassicas, the family of the brassicaceae, which includes cabbage, kohlrabi, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, those seeds are identical. And so in some cases, you can tell what plant, generally speaking, is that seed is going to be producing. And um, in other cases, you cannot. And is there a correlation between the size of a seed and then the size of the plant that you'll get from that seed? Not typically, no. I would say not. There are some plants that are just large seeded, like beans, and some that are smaller seeded, like um, broccoli. Now, a broccoli head is large, but a bean seed or a bean pod are smaller. And yet that bean seed is a large seed and the broccoli seed is quite small. Two things that you shared with me ahead of time are the following. Let's take them in order. The first is, do you collect seeds in the same manner from every plant? No, absolutely not. There are uh, different collection methods and there are several different collection methods, but the main difference are do the seeds get collected when they are fully dried on the plant or if they are harvested as a fruit and then dried after removal from the plant. So an example, um, wet techniques would be used for cucumbers or tomatoes or eggplant. And in that case, 
you have to let the fruit mature with the seeds inside and then scoop those out and dry them on a screen or on a paper towel or in some manner to make sure that, again, they are dry. Melons and squash are really easy to tell when the seeds are mature and ready to be scooped because the melons and the squash are ready to be eaten. Otherwise, there are some plants in the vegetable garden specifically that you have to let mature on the vine. Eggplant needs to be ripe enough to drop off of the plant, for instance. So there are different ripeness indicators for that. On the other hand, we have those seeds that dry on the plant, like dill. If you've ever grown dill in your garden, you know that it's going to be dry and it will shatter in your garden. Mm -hmm. So you know that the dill is ready to be harvested when it shatters. And you can actually keep that from happening by bagging the head as soon as the flowers have been fertilized. So that'll contain the head and the seeds and keep them from dropping on the ground. Beans, peas, and the cabbage family are all collected when the seeds are dry on the plant. And then they need to be further dried for a couple more weeks on the plant after they have matured and turned brown on the plant. So again, the key here is a mature plant, a mature seed, and dry before storage. So we need to do a good job of being patient when we're collecting some of these seeds. That's very true, Jennifer. That's very true. Uh, If you collect seeds before, again, speaking of vegetables, before that vegetable is fully ripe, your seed will not germinate. Cucumbers, for example, when we eat cucumbers, we eat them when the fruit is immature. A green cucumber that has that succulent, delicious, moist flesh and small seeds is not ready to have those seeds saved. A mature cucumber is yellow, it's dry inside, the setter is pulling away, and the seeds look like something you really wouldn't want to eat. That is a great example. Now, what about saving seeds from hybrids? This is a question that you and I get an awful lot. That's exactly right. We do get that an awful lot. My my glib answer to that is, well, of course you can save seeds from hybrids. Of course you can. But if you do, you have to understand that the plant that those seeds produce may not be the same plant that you save the seeds from. The genetics are such that the hybrid generation, which is the F1 generation, if you save those seeds, they will, uh, the genes segregate out in a three to one ratio where three of the progeny will resemble the parent and one will not. And the, the genetics are such that, uh, it may be even more unpredictable if you continue to save those seeds. So if you want to have seeds saved that will produce exactly or very, very closely to the plants that you saved from. It must be what's called an open-pollinated or cross-pollinated variety, which is what heirlooms are, and not a hybrid. 
I enjoy the conversational way chapter five starts out. It's called All About Germination. And here's what you wrote. This is what we've been leading up to all along, folks. If you can't get those seeds to germinate, you have invested much time for nothing. Mother Nature can be an unpredictable gardening partner when it comes to germination. So what are some common pieces of advice that you find yourself sharing over and over again with anxious gardeners puzzled by germination failures? That's a really good question. And again, that goes back to what George Washington said to us at the very beginning of the book. You really don't want to lose a season that passes away unimproved. I get tons of questions, um, anxious gardeners. They try, they do their best, and they fail. And my advice is do not give up. Mother Nature winks at us all. Even if you think that you've done everything absolutely right, she may have done something in the background that you're not aware of. Things that you can do to make sure that your seed saving is a success, harvest at the right time. Make sure that you know the ripeness indicators for the plants that you're saving seeds from. Be sure the seeds are dry enough before you store them. If you save seeds that are not dry, they will rot. And if you save them in a situation where they cannot breathe, they cannot respire, they will die. Also, broken seed coats will give you a seed that will not germinate. Be sure that if you have diseases in your garden that may be seed-borne, that you know the treatment for uh, making sure that that disease is not perpetuated. Typically, it's a boiling water treatment, and you can read about that in my book. Uh, test for the germination rate before you plant. So if you have any doubts that your seeds may not be viable, that ragdoll test, where you take the seeds and roll it up in a moist paper towel and let those seeds germinate over a couple weeks on your counter in a plastic bag, they'll tell you if you've had success or not and then whether you should go ahead and plant or not. Um, again, some seeds have complex dormancies that need to be overcome, and you typically see this in perennials woody trees, shrubs, and uh, plants such like that, uh, they actually require some kind of a treatment uh, that includes acid because in nature the seeds may pass through the gut of an animal and uh, come through the animal and the acid actually is part of the germination process. It takes away some of the materials that need to be taken away. We have to emulate that in order for those particular seeds to germinate. Uh, there are some that require a cold, wet period, which uh, simulates a winter, an overwinter outside. So there are seeds that have complex dormancies. And if you are a beginner and you stumbled across one of those by accident, you may feel frustrated. Uh, take a look in the, in the literature Take a look in my book, take a look online, and see if there's a special germination situation for that particular plant. But do not give up. 
this is a complicated, complex issue for some plants, not for all. And that's why I suggest that you start with those easy plants, those annual flowers, some vegetables that are annual vegetables. Don't give up. As you're talking, I'm thinking about how people used to learn how to do all of these wonderful things. And that is they had grandma or their own mother or an aunt or some neighbor standing there with them and demonstrating all of this, passing this knowledge on, kind of a oral history. Nowadays, if you're a new gardener and you're kind of on an island, you don't have that trusted friend, family member to walk you through this, you can really take on all of the blame on your own shoulders when things don't go right. And so it's really important, if you, especially if you don't have a trusted, wise gardener in your sphere of influence, that you're going to have to take a deep breath and not give up. That's exactly right. Now, on page 76 of your book, you share a very detailed table, and it outlines seedling problems and solutions. And I loved this chart so much, I thought Cheryl should make this into an infographic and share it on social media, because it's so very helpful. There's so much good information in this table. And it's everything from hey, my plants are leggy, my plants are spindly, or my plants have bleach leaved, or they're stunted. And then you share possible causes and corrections to address these various issues. So in a sense, it's like having the wise gardener standing beside you looking at your plants going, "Mm, this doesn't look quite right. Here's probably what we need to do. So gardeners, are constantly forced to play detective. What's going on with my plant? But it's difficult if you don't have that frame of reference or you don't have an expert living nearby. So do you have some tips and tricks for us, some things that you immediately connect in your brain when you see certain plant problems? If we could dig inside Cheryl's brain and just have you pour out some of this wisdom, especially when it comes to that early germination, things that can go wrong, things that you immediately connect in your brain. What would you share with us? Okay, that's, yeah, it, this is a fun table and it is specifically when you're growing your own transplants. So these are things that can go wrong in your home when you have seeded into flats or into uh, containers and You're trying to grow these transplants while the snow may be flying outside. Um, We often see leggy, spindly plants. Now, one of the biggest problems that people that are growing plants inside is they don't have enough light. They think that putting their uh, container that uh, has the seed in it in a window will be adequate light. And typically that is just not the case. So we see leggy spindly plants when we have not enough light. Also, if you're watering too much or too little, if you're fertilizing too much or too little, if you neglected to thin, if you have lots of seeds that are all coming up all at once, and you have not uh, taken a few of those out because they're competing with each other for nutrients, for water, for light. They're going to be leggy and they're going to be spindly. 
Uh, so you can use your scissors, don't pull them out by the roots, and thin those little seedlings. Um, we also have plants that are stunted, and stunting is usually a nutrient deficiency. There are uh, there is information available that tells you how much fertilizer you should be giving to your seedlings. Uh, if you don't give them any at all, you're probably going to have a little bit of a problem because seeding media doesn't have any nutrient charge unless it says so specifically on the label. We also have uh, seedlings that collapse right at the right at the soil surface. They'll literally just fall over. And that is often a fungal disease. And we see fungal diseases frequently when people go out to their garden and use that soil to start their seedlings inside without sterilizing the soil first. And that can be done in an oven at 100 degrees for about three hours if you feel like you need to use your own soil. Don't use soil that hasn't been sterilized. We also can get algae on the growth on the medium, which can be a medium mix that maybe is old, maybe watered too much. Uh, bleached leaves, in other words, the leaves of your seedlings turn white. Now, that can often be because you've got your lights too close to the plant. You need to have lights close enough to the plant, uh, say two inches above the canopy in order for them to get enough light. But if you have incandescent bulbs in your mix, they also give off heat. So they have to be further away from the plant or else they'll turn those um, cotyledons and the new leaves white. Um, one of the biggest problems that I see is that people start their seeds too early. If you live in an area where there's frost, you need to know when the average last frost date is and you need to know how long in advance you should be planting your seeds so you don't get going too early. You've saved your seeds, you're so excited about getting them into the soil, and you end up planting them in January when your planting date outside is June, and it only takes six to eight weeks usually to make a good transplant. Once again, that patience is paying off in spades. That's exactly right. I have to ask, you mentioned when you were talking about seedlings, don't pull them out by the roots, cut them with a scissor. Why is that? Oh, that's if you have if you have seedlings that are coming up close to each other, their roots are even closer. They could be entangled with each other, and by pulling up those plantlets by the roots to thin them, you could be damaging the roots of their neighboring plants. So take your scissors and um, little sharp scissors and snip those plants that you're thinning out real close to the soil surface to give the other plants room to grow and not damage the roots. Okay. So is this is that a best practice? Do you consider that to be a best practice when it comes to thinning seedlings? I would consider, yes, I would. Okay. Let me ask as well about airflow when it comes to all these little, little seedlings. Do you do anything to enhance airflow when you're trying to grow things indoors? I don't do anything to enhance airflow. I do make sure that my nighttime temperatures are cooler than my daytime temperatures. Those diurnal temperature fluctuations are important, 
and it doesn't have to be much, and it doesn't have to happen at all. Some seedlings will also benefit from um, heat mat underneath the flats, and some actually will be hindered by that heat mat. So that's something else that you need to uh, look up for your particular plant. Lettuce seedlings, for instance, have something that's called thermodormancy. So actually it's the seeds that have thermodormancy. They will not uh, germinate over 80 degrees, for instance. Okay. And when you say you are very concerned about making sure that nighttime temperature drops a little bit, how do you ensure that or what do you do? What's your setup for that? My setup for starting my transplants is a simple uh, rack of shelves from which I hang light fixtures, just some very simple fluorescent fixtures uh, with um, full-spectrum light, and I'm experimenting with LCD light as well. And it's just in my downstairs in my home. So when I go to bed at night, I turn the thermostat down, and when I wake up in the morning, I turn it up. Okay. So probably better sleeping for you and better growing for them. Absolutely. That's exactly right. In Chapter 7 of Part 1 of your book, you discuss some of the principles and practices of plant breeding on the home garden scale. Now, this is for advanced gardeners. One piece of information pertaining to this subject is offered earlier in your book on page 31 in a section called Roguing and Tagging. I thought that was very helpful. Could I have you read that? And then let's have you say a few words to experienced gardeners who are really serious about trying their hand at plant breeding. All right, then. There's an old Roman saying that the footsteps of the master make the best manure. And in truth, the gardener who spends the most time carefully tending her crops often produces the best crops. The same is true when it comes to growing plants for seed. If you notice a plant that's developing a disease problem or is being overwhelmed by insect pests, pull it out and get rid of it. If you see an off-type plant or one that bolted early, pull it out. This process of removal of undesirable types is called roguing. It's a simple way to get inferior plants out of the way and out of the gene pool. On the other hand, if you see a strong, healthy plant with desirable characteristics, tag the plant with a bright ribbon or a string. It can be helpful to write a description of favorable traits on the tag to remind you later when it's time to save seed. So if you're serious about breeding, you want to be looking in your garden at plants that have the best characteristics. And... Use those plants as your parental stock because otherwise genetics can be very unpredictable. If you want to start a breeding program in your backyard, I'd say start with something easy like squash. Squash has male flowers and female flowers on the same plant, and the flowers are very easy, easily recognized whether they're male or female. And you can cross those squash different squash plants if you want to get wild and crazy and cross a, a butternut with a buttercup or one of the other types of squash and see what you end up with, it's very easy to do. But remember that if you do make that cross, you will only be impacting the next generation 
of plants that you save from the seed of the flower that you pollinate. So select for the desired traits, tag what you've done so that you know which one of those flowers is the plant that you actually, it's going to produce the seeds that you actually crossed and enjoy the process. That's great advice. Now, I'm curious, do you have any favorite resources for folks who are getting into seed saving? Some things that you have in your own toolkit at home that you just think, oh, these are great resources for people and they should use them. Of course, my book. I refer to my book all the time because there's so much information in it that uh, you can't keep it all in your head as far as all of the different treatments and so on. The Internet is wonderful as far as resources are concerned. Um, and even experts such as myself, I have to, I have to go to the expert uh, literature and see what I can find in some cases as far as germination rates and treatments to break dormancy and so on. Okay. And do you have any final words of encouragement for gardeners who want to save seeds for their 2018 garden? Yes, I do. First of all, you will need to start thinking and planning early. So when those seed catalogs start flooding your mailbox, as they always do, and they're getting earlier and earlier, you should be thinking about saving seeds. Which varieties should I choose for my garden that are specifically open-pollinated or heirlooms or cross-pollinated? You can, of course, save seeds from hybrids, which are designated typically by F1, but I would not do that uh, knowingly if you want to be sure that you save seeds that will resemble, that will give you plants that resemble the parent plants. Um, base your plants properly when you're making your little map. I don't know about you folks, but I always make a map of my garden as soon as I know what's going to go into it, and I make sure that if I'm going to save seeds from a biennial that's going to be in the ground over the next winter, that I give it plenty of space mm. because the second year that biennial plant is going to be huge, yeah. whereas the first year it's going to be small because it's just making a root. Know if your biennial will actually overwinter. So if you live in a cold location, you need to know how cold your, your yard is going to be, how cold your soil is going to be, and if that biennial will actually overwinter in your garden right. or you will need to dig it up and put it into your crawl space over that next winter. Mm -hmm. And be prepared to experiment with those biennials. If you don't know if it will actually overwinter in your garden and you can't find an experienced gardener to tell you, you may lose a crop or two in um, experimenting with that biennial. But start early. Start planting early, plant your seeds in the garden, thinking about seed saving. I think that's probably about it. So in a sense, kind of begin with the end in mind. Plant, Absolutely. but also be thinking about those seeds when you're buying seed. Absolutely. The time to be starting to be thinking about seed saving is in spring. And uh, planning for it so you're not disappointed when fall comes and you think, oh, I should have done X, Y, or Z. Mm, yeah, that's right. 
Well, Cheryl, if people wanted to get a hold of you, where are you at on social media? And share with us your website. So you can find me on Facebook at Cheryl Moore Goff. And Moore Goff is hyphenated and Cheryl is with a C with the word author first. So author Cheryl Moore Goff on Facebook. My email is Cheryl at RockyMountainGardening.com. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. I think this is just so timely for people as they start to wrap up their 2017 garden and be planning for their 2018. They can be thinking about saving seeds and incorporating that into the entire process for next year. That's exactly right. Absolutely. Well, thanks for being on the show today, Cheryl. I really, really appreciate it. Well, and thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. It was fun. Well, that's it for our show today featuring Cheryl Moore Goff. I hope this episode helped you better understand how you can save seeds from your garden to use in next year's garden, to share with fellow gardeners, or even to donate to the community through our local seed libraries. And if you'd like to hear more from Cheryl, you can check out her two-minute daily radio program, which can be heard via podcast at northernbroadcasting.com. On the Listen tab, just click on Northern Gardening Tips. Just a reminder, I'll have all the generous information that Cheryl shared on the show today under the Still Growing Podcast page on my website over at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six ftmama.com. I'd like to thank my team at Podfly Productions for helping me produce this episode, my editor and project manager, Eric Begay, and my copywriter, Ein Kadena. I'd also like to thank the women who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Engel Gardens in Illinois, and she works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi, and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, Patricia Chandler-Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan. Deb Gibson and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager over at American Beauty's Native Plants. And she was also featured on the show back in episode 553, talking about how you can incorporate more natives into your garden. I'll sign off today with this question. What seeds can you save from your garden this year? Start simple with easy seed-saving crops like lettuce, tomatoes, beans, peas, basil, or some of your favorite flowering annuals. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.